All right. Thank you, everybody, for coming. Wow, the light right in my face is Super great. Super bright. <clears throat> so this is architecting ASP.NET Core uh, microservices for on AWS. So if this is not the session you wanted to be in, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong place. Um, my name's Kirk Davis. I'm a specialized solutions architect uh, on the Microsoft platform team. Um, I'm a longtime .NET developer uh, and Microsoft platform developer, technically, I guess, since 1983 when I got a Commodore VIC-20 and it came with Microsoft Basic 1.0, but uh, I don't really program in Basic anymore. Um, and this is Nikki Klein. I'm Nikki. I'm a technical evangelist at AWS. Uh, if you're not familiar with the term, what that means is basically they pay me to play with the cool stuff that they build and then show you how cool it is. It's my job. Um, and I'm a .NET developer. I've been a .NET developer for five years. I don't go quite as far back as you, but... Uh, <laughs> I think I have a few years on you. Just a anyway. couple. So uh, the agenda for today's session is we're going to really quick go through... Well, basically, we created a sample application using a, a .NET Core microservices uh, architecture, and we're going to go through why we chose .NET Core. Probably that's obvious, uh, but it could be .NET Framework, I guess. Um, sort of our, our architectural goal uh, for this sample application, an overview of the architecture, by which I mean the services that we use to compose um, the application, how we did authentication and authorization, um, how we hooked up distributed tracing and logging, uh, session state and DynamoDB, uh, both session cookies for tracking and optionally session state. Um, the rest of it's up there. So that's what we're going to go through here today. These are some related sessions. This is kind of a sick joke, because two out of three of these are already <laughs> passed. Um, but if you are interested in the topic moving forward, there is, well, I think, one session on here that's or still available. Or if you have a time machine. Thursday? Either yeah. way. <laughs> Tomorrow at 11.30, if you're still interested in hearing more about uh, well-architected .NET apps. Don't want to miss that one. Why .NET Core? Uh, so .NET Core is definitely the future of .NET. It's modular, it's lightweight, it's cross-platform. I'm running on my Mac right now. Um, it runs in pretty much the full spectrum of AWS services now, like full compute spectrum. And uh, if you already have experience with .NET framework, then you should slide right into .NET Core really fast. It shouldn't be very hard at all for you to get up to speed. Um, and it's also uh, benchmarks for, uh, for several of our services. It's faster than Node.js and Java in numerous benchmarks, which is pretty cool. And then if you didn't, if you didn't uh, see my breakout last night, I talked a little bit about .NET history. So this is another reason why we believe that .NET Core is the future of .NET. Um, originally, when Microsoft was going to release .NET Core, they put out this diagram because... <coughs> oh, <Whoa>. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you okay? Bless you. That was just a cough. That was a cough. Okay, never mind. <clears throat> Sounded like a sneeze. It's like a bomb went off, Jesus. <laughs> um, so originally, when they were going to release .NET Core, they were going to name it .NET Core 5, just to show you that they really saw it as the next step in the evolution of .NET. Of course, you know the story. They named it .NET Core 1, now 2, 2.1, and then 3 is coming. Um, so they didn't end up choosing this name, but I like to show it because it's interesting to see how, how they thought of it um, and how we think of it. And then lastly, um, Berner also likes C Sharp, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so that's a, always a good thing. So some of the considerations we took into when trying to figure out how to build a ASP.NET Core Microsoft Services app, uh, our goal was to deploy something where we didn't have any infrastructure to manage, um, where none of the services required us to like launch servers or, uh, God forbid, have to install operating systems or run IIS and, and get in and configure things. So um, we also wanted the services to be able to be reachable from the internet, so we put a web front end on it. So they had to be uh, reachable from the internet, but also be able to talk to each other, because we might not want to have private microservices that, uh, that we don't want reachable from the internet. And we wanted support for both anonymous users and authentication, authenticated users, which means we have to have a, you know, a place for users to be stored. So, and also, we didn't want any infrastructure for any of this stuff. Um, and really important for microservices application is logging and request tracing. Um, and fortunately, AWS has services that uh, will do that job for us as well. And then last, we're going to talk about the, the automated CI-CD pipeline, where we don't have to manually deploy code up and uh, provision any kind of infrastructure where it's all just going to happen automatically. I'm going to see that work so that we can 
That's true. Um, so, as with anything that you build, there are many different ways to skin a cat. And with AWS, um, even if you constrain the uh, requirements to no infrastructure, you still have many different options. So today we're going to talk about some of the choices that we made, but you might make different ones, and that's totally okay. Um, just you can see here, if you go with the no infrastructure compute, you can choose between Lambda or Fargate, um, storage, S3, or Dynamo. So don't feel um, that you have to make the same choices that we made, because um, there's a lot of different options, and the beauty about AWS is that there's an infinite amount of choices that you can make. And you could mix and match different choices, too. I mean, there's, you don't have to just, we chose containers, but you could also do a hybrid application. So you could mix and match on a lot of these. So for the architecture that we chose, um, this diagram we're going to build up over the next few slides. Uh, the computer on the left there represents users that are running in a browser. Um, they're hitting their request to go to an application load balancer. The microservices themselves are each in their own containers, so the blue orangish and purple containers are three different microservices for products, orders, and shopping cart. The green is supposed to represent perhaps another service that we don't want to be reachable from the internet, so there's no line going to it from the application load balancer. Uh, and then DynamoDB is off there on the right, and that's where we're storing everything for this little sample application. For real-world apps, maybe you might want to have some relational database, so there's Aurora serverless. You could actually have a serverless relational database if you if you uh, had data that was more amenable to that. So if you look at this, though, right now, it looks a little lopsided. Everything's up top, and that's because all those containers are running in one availability zone. And so if a giant asteroid or something took out that availability zone, or a flood, maybe more realistically, um, then your app would go down. And one of our constraints was we wanted this whole thing to be highly available, so no single point of failure. Um, and so we just uh, set up the container ECS services to automatically deployed to two availability zones, so there's two copies of every one of those containers. And then for users that, if we're going to have any real-world uh, website that is relying on microservices in the back end, you're going to have some way to authenticate those people. Uh, we chose Cognito because, again, nothing, to, no infrastructure to manage. It's a great, highly available service. Uh, the AWS Amplify uh, JavaScript libraries made it really easy to take the user's credentials at the end or on the web page transmitted over HTTPS to Cognito, where the actual authentication happens, and then a cryptographically signed JSON web token, which is a JOT, or called JOT, comes back, and then that gets passed along on subsequent requests to any of the APIs that uh, we want to restrict to authenticated users. Um, in order for the backend services, those microservices running in containers to find each other, we didn't want them to have to like, go out over the internet and come into the application load balancer again. So we use a service called ECS Service Discovery, which will automatically register. It, it, I'll go into, or actually I think Nikki will go into that more a little later. Um, but it also lets those microservices talk to, say, private microservices that are, aren't accessible via the application load balancer anyway. Um, and then the last part of the architecture overall uh, are two services we added, which are Amazon CloudWatch, which, uh, CloudWatch logs, where we're, all of our application logs are going to CloudWatch. Uh, again, no infrastructure to manage, highly available service. Uh, and some new features have just been added, I think announced uh, two days ago or earlier this week, um, where you can get visualizations and queries out of your logs. So it's even more useful than it was when we first created this slide. And then X-Ray for distributed tracing. And then there's the web front end. So yeah, that was the back end. The front end is just an Angular app. Uh, it's running the latest version of Angular. And I used AWS Amplify. If you're not familiar with AWS Amplify, I highly suggest you check it out. It's one of my favorite AWS services. The reason being is I don't have to know a single thing about AWS to basically create a cloud-hosted application. So I don't have to know what the service names are called, how to use them, nothing. If I just basically know how to use Amplify's CLI tool, um, I can just do simple things like Amplify Add Hosting, Amplify Add Storage, and it will basically set up an entire application hosted for me on the internet, which is excellent. So least amount of information possible. I also think it's really cool. That link there is the docs. Uh, it was a little act of rebellion by the Amplify team. They do not have their docs hosted on AWS. They are hosted on GitHub. Um, so it's a really interesting Soon uh, to be take. Microsoft GitHub Enterprise 2018 yeah. V2, probably. Anyways, they're on GitHub. Um, if you know any of the JavaScript frameworks, the most popular ones, Angular, React, Vue.js, 
uh, you should definitely check out Amplify. It also works for React Native. Well, so service routing. So he briefly touched on this. So we have external service routing, and that's going through our ALB, or application load balancer. Um, and when we're using path-based routing, so you can see the paths there. And then internally, we're using ECS service discovery so that the containers can find each other, basically. So if we have private containers, um, so you could think about maybe like a products service or a payment service maybe that we didn't create here, but maybe you don't want payment being able to be reached out to the internet, but the other containers need to be able to access it. Um, that is the beauty of ECS service discovery. Identity management. So we used Amazon Cognito user pools, um, and you can actually use Amplify to create your user pool for you by just by doing Amplify add auth, one simple command, super cool. However, we actually created the user pool in this case. Um, it's a great service for managing identities. You don't have to manage any infrastructure. Um, you can also use uh, federated identities to log in. So you can set this up with Facebook, um, Amazon, what are the other ones? Google, SAML, OpenID, all of these. You're all gonna use Amazon, right? Yeah. To be <laughs> uh, probably not, but yeah. So all of, our, all of our users are stored in Amazon Cognito user pools. <laughs> which again, as you mentioned, is Sorry. using the, uh, the Jot. Okay, so since we're using Cognito to issue that JWT token, does everyone already know what a JSON web token is? JWT, probably, most people. Um, that's issuing this Jot token. So Cognito did the authentication, and then the authorization people, the, the people, the authorization piece we're gonna do uh, in ASP.NET. So, there were different options for doing that, and one option we, we looked at was like we could use API Gateway, which has integrated Cognito authorization in it, and uh, you, can, you can get pretty granular. You can vary the authorization requirement by request type, so I could have a get to my uh, products be allowed, but maybe a post to my products. If you're adding a new product, maybe that would be restricted. Um, on the other hand, that means we'd have to put another layer kind of in front and have another service involved. And then if I have two services that want to talk to each other and I want to proxy the JWT tokens along, it gets more complicated. Um, so we're already using application load balancer. And earlier this year, I don't know, March or April or something, uh, the, the application load balancer team launched a feature which is integrated Cognito off for ALB. Um, so then you don't have to have another service. It's already built into the ALB. And that might work for some people's architectures. Oh, that was July. Was it July? Okay. Yeah. I thought it was earlier than that. I but, just remember. Um, so anyway, that, that might work for some people, but for us, because I'm a .NET developer for a long time, I basically I like using that authorized attribute and specifying exactly which group that I want people to be in. Um, so that wasn't really granular enough for us. Um, and the last one was you could do this just with a custom authorization handler in C Sharp. Um, and the pros are you can do everything that I want to do. You can be as granular as you want. I can use different, you know, different groups and, and put them on different methods or mix and match. Um, so it's very granular, and then the con might be that you need to write some code, but uh, if you're a developer, maybe that's not really a con. And it turns out it's not a lot of code anyway. This is the actual code for the authorization handler. That's pretty much the whole class. Just, it's just missing the namespace line at the top. And all this code, I just pushed it up to my personal GitHub repo just before this started, so I'll give you the link to that at the end. Um, but this is literally the whole class. It, all it does is it looks to see uh, in your identities that get in the claims that were passed in from the JWT token, which have already been populated by the middleware into the security principle um, claims. It's just gonna see, do you have a claim of type cognito groups? And is the value equal to whatever, uh, whatever group that I'm looking for? Um, and if so, you're in, and if not, fail. And then uh, you get a denied, access denied. And then you just have to register that and start up. The first part of this is all only if you have specific roles that you want to have. Like most production apps, you don't just have authenticated or not. You probably have people who are admins and people who are in some other role and then unauthenticated users. So you would only need to do the top part if you have different roles. Otherwise, you just add that. You, you still need to do services.add singleton and add that register that one cognito group authorization handler that we just showed a second ago. Um, but other, yeah, so that's it. And then the, for those of you who aren't .NET developers, you might not recognize what this is, but it's an ASP.NET MVC controller method. 
Uh, and in this case, it's, the, it's a very basic demo of a post for a product. Um, and you'll see the authorize has policy name, insight admin group. So that way, if anybody's JALT token um, doesn't have the Cognito group site admin then, or site admin group, then they wouldn't be able to hit this method. So it, it's very similar to what I was doing eight years ago in an ASP.NET framework app, to be honest. And then distributed tracing. So obviously, uh, usually the first question people ask when they start building microservices is, how am I going to be able to track all of this? Log and something or find an error when something happens. And so we used X-Ray, which I think is an excellent service. Um, it's distributed tracing. So you can either run it on the host or you can run it as a sidecar. We're using a sidecar. We're running basically the X-Ray daemon in a sidecar container. The reason for that being is we don't actually have access to our host because we chose to use Fargate. So you know it's abstracted away from us. We don't have access to the host. So we're just using a sidecar container to run the X-Ray daemon in. And it's really cool because you can see basically your entire service and all the interdependencies between um, the different containers and how it's working. And so we have a little picture for you. I don't know if you'll be able to see it that well. Maybe, um, but you can kind of see how things are interacting with each other. Uh, X-Ray has a number of other features if you haven't checked it out before besides this service map visualization. Obviously, if there's an error, you'll get the whole stack trace, um, which is pretty cool. Um, so if you haven't looked at X-Ray, I highly encourage you to check it out after this presentation. But this is just one of the many features you would get with X-Ray's distributed tracing. And then logging. Logging is important. We need to log everything, and we want to consolidate our logs. So we used uh, CloudWatch logs, and our CICD pipeline spits out logs to CloudWatch. Our container logs also go to CloudWatch. Um, and then for our application-level logs, we just installed that NuGet package, aws-logger.aspnetcore, and then that the application will log, and it will also spit out to CloudWatch. So we now have them all in one place. And from there, you know, you can do a bunch of things in CloudWatch, as he mentioned, like analyze it, create dashboards, all kinds of fun stuff. And the logs were really important. Like even in developing this sample app, like Microsoft at one point changed the name of the container for ASP.NET Core, and it's now like dash SDK or runtime, whatever, when they went to 2.1. And, and I had changed something. And, and anyway, just, just being able to have access to the logs to see what happened just makes it really quick. And you go, oh, OK, because all the logs are going to one place. Does anyone not know what Fargate is already? I just thought about that, that we've been talking about Fargate. Would anyone like me to tell what Fargate is? Yeah? OK, why not? So Fargate is a feature of ECS, which is a container orchestration service, where you don't have to worry about the Docker host. You don't even see it. The, the underlying host is not even in your VPC. You just push up your containers. We will automatically place your containers, put scale them up and down according to whatever rules you set, make them highly available across whatever availability zones that you set. Um, and then you're just paying per second or per minute, or something like that. You're paying for how long the container actually runs. So the, the pricing is sort of similar to Lambda. Um, rather than containers. Yeah. So instead of paying for the underlying host, you're just paying for that container to run. It's just a launch type. So if you're in ECS, you can choose to either launch your containers on EC2, which means you're managing everything, or you can choose Fargate, which means you're managing close to nothing. Almost which nothing. We really. like it's managing like serverless nothing. Containers. So. One caveat being that currently Fargate only supports Linux containers, so that's .NET Core only, uh, not .NET Framework. But uh, I assume everyone's probably, if you're a .NET developer, you've seen the writing on the wall, and you probably know that you should be doing new projects in .NET Core anyway, really. <coughs> so I'll try to stop coughing, sorry. <clears throat> the air here is so dry. So I was going to talk a little bit about session in uh, ASP.NET Core. So with a microservices application, you might not even need to track session with session cookies. Oh, I have one that's already open. But oh, okay. I'll drink this one, too. So if you have a microservices app, you might not need to track session state, especially if it's like a microservices app that's running you know, uh, for back-end stuff that's not exposed to the internet via a, as a website, then you wouldn't need to worry about it anyway. Um, but it can be useful for tracking unauthenticated users. If you've got people visiting your site and you want to be able to track them from request to request, that's really useful. Uh, or if you're using the out-of-the-box ASP.NET, um, the local accounts checkbox in Visual Studio if you're creating it that way, uh, or if you're using the OpenID, uh, OpenID Connect 
uh, authentication, the authentication ticket is stored in session cookies, so it can be very useful to do this. Um, the cookies are encrypt, uh, ASP.NET by default, uh, ASP.NET Core, the session middleware, it encrypts all of its session cookies so that they can't be hijacked uh, or impersonated or forged or whatever. Um, so it encrypts the cookie with encryption keys, and when it starts up, by default, it, if you haven't done any other configuration, those encryption keys are gonna be generated and stored locally, uh, which brings us to an issue where if you have a distributed application like this, um, I have, say, some microservice running in container, green, whatever at the top, you can see each container has its own keys, and so if the first container issues a cookie, then the next request that browser makes, it's gonna send the cookie, it might go to a completely different container, either different, a different microservice or even the same one running in a different container, but that other container doesn't have those encryption keys, so it wouldn't be able to decrypt them, and so it's gonna create a new session cookie, and so you just have this endless new sessions being created, none of them would be shared, and it would be broken as I discovered when I did this in Lambda at one point, like when .NET Core first came out for Lambda. So the solution is to take those encryption keys and persist them somewhere in a shared storage place. Um, you're gonna wanna, uh, to, to do that, you implement, do an implementation of the IXML repository interface. Um, and this is, uh, you can save them in DynamoDB, there's other services you can save them in. Um, I found, well, actually I'll talk about this in a second. Uh, yeah, so some of the services we have where you could potentially store these would be Secrets Manager, Parameter Store, um, DynamoDB, S3. Uh, Nikki's gonna show you some code in here in a second. I did wanna say that for Parameter Store, I just like 30 minutes ago happened to bump into the, uh, one of the developer, uh, SDE, Software Development Engineers, who puts out our NuGet packages, and they've actually come out with virtually the same code that we're gonna show you. Uh, it'll be available as a NuGet package eventually, and it's already available on the AWS GitHub site, so you don't have to take a picture of this one and use it if you don't want. We'll have the official one that's coming, but. So this is our class that we used to uh, store our cookie encryption keys in Parameter Store. Initially, we chose Parameter Store um, because it's free and it's serverless and it's a feature of AWS Systems Manager. Um, but then we thought about it and we were like, well, because it's free, we don't know how much traffic we can actually be sending to it. And so we actually changed our minds and decided to store the cookie encryption keys in Dynamo. It, this class is not very complicated. Um, it really has two methods, get all elements and store element. And the class that we're gonna show you that we ended up going with, um, it has the same two methods. Uh, the difference being it's actually calling the Dynamo DB SDK. Oops, sorry, did you skip did over it? Yeah, sorry. so this is the Dynamo. That was parameter store, and Go then over this one. is Dynamo. Sorry. This is the DynamoDB version of it. So it looks almost the same, same methods. Um, it's using the uh, DynamoDB object persistence model to actually store the cookie encryption keys. And then the XML class, the XML key class is just a simple POCO. There's nothing complicated about it. The attributes there are, um, you can see the little attributes on top of the class and on top of the uh, um, properties, it, they're just uh, part of the object persistence model, so they just tell the class uh, where it's gonna store the keys. So, uh, if you were, say, migrating an existing ASP.NET application over to uh, breaking it up into microservices, moving it in, if it's like every other ASP.NET app I have ever seen, probably, the developers used a lot of sticking arbitrary data in session and then reading it out later um, might not be the very best uh, best practice, but in a lot of cases for a quick solution, that's uh, what developers do. And again, for microservices, you may not need to store anything in session. Browsers have local storage that you can use to stick things in with JavaScript in the browser. Um, but if you do need things, to, uh, do need to store things in session uh, and then have that be available to your, um, all of your microservices, uh, out of the box, um, ASP.NET session uh, stores it in process, right? Um, if, you, if you were an ASP.NET framework developer, you probably know that you could go into web config and change it to from in process to like SQL server or a state server. Uh, with ASP.NET Core, the, the, the default is also in memory or in process. Um, and then if you want to put it somewhere else, you have an implementation of iDistributed cache. So Microsoft has provided uh, I distributed cache implementations for SQL Server, surprise, surprise, 
and Redis. Both of those solutions would require you to have yet another set of EC2 instances or servers to, to manage and SQL Server to patch. Uh, and they're not, that, that's infrastructure. So we wanted the least amount of infrastructure or ideally no infrastructure. And so we're already using DynamoDB to store other stuff, including those encryption keys. So uh, we thought that would be a perfect place to store session state. Um, and there is a NuGet package that we already have for ASP.NET Framework that will do this for you. But for ASP.NET Core, we haven't published that yet. So I just wrote my own. Um, it was pretty simple to do. Rather than having to then, if you're using SQL Server, for instance, every time you get a something out of session, you're supposed to be checking whether it's expired. If it is, you have to make another call to the database, delete it. Um, but DynamoDB has a TTL feature, so you can have things automatically expire and be removed without having to make an extra call. So at the end of all that, the code was really simple. This is one method in the code, which is just the get async. Um, in order to implement iDistributed Cache, you have to implement both synchronous and asynchronous get, set, remove, and refresh methods. So we just did them all as async, and then for the synchronous methods, we just called the async and then did a dot result or dot wait to, to make it synchronous. Um, and then the actual uh, session data is passed in from the session middleware as a byte array that you can see uh, as the, the return type there. It's task a byte because this is asynchronous, but it's just returning a byte array which has a base64 encoded bag of your session data, which is just key value pairs, right? Or if it's a, if, if the value was some object that was serialized, it'll be the JSON serialized version of that. Um, so the actual DynamoDB record just has the session ID, which is the primary key, um, the session, which is that byte array, and then I have the expiry type also in there, and then when, when it's supposed to expire. So we were gonna just show you a quick demo of the sample front end, it's not a production ready. We have sample icons and so on. Let's see if PC2, no. There we go. Oh, but you're extending maybe? Oh no. Give us a second. And there's a giant mountain that looks familiar to anyone who has a Mac probably. All right. So I'm actually on a Windows. I have a I have Windows 10 ThinkPad, but just to prove that two people can collaborate, we were each writing code. She's on a Mac. I'm on Windows, and it all just worked perfectly with .NET Core, which is awesome. So this is our application. Um, this is a shopping cart. There's two things in it by default. It's because we threw two things in there to show that. Um, you can add things to the cart, so I'm not logged in right now, so I can just add this deep lens to the cart. Sorry, there's no user feedback. I didn't get to that. I just added the uh -huh. Amazon Deep Racer car because that looked really cool. Um, I don't know if anybody saw that demo this morning. Of I really want one. I like, want one really, really want one really badly. Anyways, so this is a, I added something to my cart. I can remove something from my cart. I'm all unauthenticated at the minute. I can log in. Um, now this is using AWS Amplify to actually communicate with Amazon Cognito. And there was very little code that I saw she had to write to implement this because the Amplify library does so much stuff for you. So now I'm logged in. Um, I can add things to my card again. I can do a bunch of things. But basically, it's just a, it's a very simple app. If I look at the, uh, the API, so this is the products API, so I have it up here. Um, I think I can hit the cart one. Show you guys what's in my cart. Um, so this is the default cart, right? So this is an unauthenticated user would be hitting this API. You can hit this URL from your phones right now, and it would produce the same thing. Go for it. <laughs> We're highly available. Hit refresh here once. I just want to see if we'll pull the... Uh... There we go. So. Oh, yeah, you can add products. The... I'm didn't... an admin. Yeah, so she's an admin, and she's got her email up there. Please don't spam her. <laughs> or spam her. I don't know. So... Thank you. Nobody was going to see that until you specifically <laughs> called it out. Right there. It's Nick Kick at, okay, I didn't say that. Appreciate that. Chris. She's authenticated now, so she can add a product. I can add a product. Mm -hmm. I can delete a product. These little delete icons showed up. I don't know why that. Did you add a product? Yeah, go ahead. You want me to add a product? Yeah, we have 30 minutes. What should, we, what, what should we add? Anybody have a product they want to add? You already added the Anyone. deep race car. Like, 
What? Lewis, let's add Lewis. He looks expensive. <laughs> How much is Lewis? One dollar. Yeah. It's really sad for Lewis. That would be expensive for my five-year-old. Uh, there's only one of him, so. Yeah, that's true. You're gonna go out of stock really quick, Lewis. Actually, it's just that. Cool stuff? Is he cool stuff? I saw that. I think he's cool stuff. Is anybody gonna buy him? Go on your phones really quick and buy Lewis. Okay. There he is. All right. So that was a demo with the front end, and then we're gonna do another demo uh, a little bit later after we tell you what we're gonna demo later. Uh, <laughs> so for organizing the code for this sample project, we just had you know three microservices plus the front end. Um, we wanted to set it up in such a way that like anytime you make a change to the code, I can just do git push, git commit, git push, and it would just magically go deploy it and, and uh, everywhere, whether it's the front end or the containers, whichever microservice it was. Um, we were also trying to think of ways where you could organize the different repos or the different projects or uh, the microservices so that if you theoretically had a team that was working on one of them that was really fast and the other microservice was maybe uh, evolving at a slower velocity for whatever reason, they could be deployed independently just because I make a change to the cart service doesn't mean I want to have to redeploy the product service. But at the same time, I want to be able to see them all in Visual Studio. So like, there's no single way to do that. There's a lot of different ways, and I'm open to hearing what other people have done. Uh, we chose to have like a solution file that's in one repository. Um, and then, <coughs> sorry, each microservice is its own CS project in its own folder, which is its own Git repository, so that every one of those can be independently done. And then if you had a real, an actual production app, and I, I ran into this at a previous job where we had many, many, many microservices, and so some teams <coughs> were only really needed to like see these eight, and another team might need to see these six, including two of that eight. And so we had like six different solution files that we kept in one repo, and then I would, like if I was on the, some particular team, I would open up a particular solution file that would show me the six microservices that I cared about. So that was something I've done in the past. So we kind of did similar here, but we only have one solution file. There's only two of us, so it wasn't really a big problem. So the total number of Git repos that we have is the total number of microservices plus one for the solution file and any other things that we want to dump in the solution folder, like a copy of documentation or something like that. So <coughs> this is what it looks like in Visual Studio. Oh, we need to switch back to the slides. Oh, can you guys not see that? How Whoops. long was that happening for? It was, uh, was a while. <laughs> yeah, sorry. There we go. Now it makes a lot more sense. There's multiple ways to solve that. Apologies, that was my fault. <clears throat> or, or, yeah, it was your fault. Yeah, it was. So, <laughs> you could put everything in a single repo, and you could do some kind of conditional build. But there's more work involved, and I was trying to do the least amount of technical work as possible. So uh, in Visual Studio, that's what that looks like. Um, on the left, for people over there, sorry. On the left, they you can, can see, see the Visual Studio solution view, where there's the cart service, order service, product service, and then the front end, the static website, that, that which she mentioned is hosted in S3. The other three all go to containers. They get containerized and pushed up. And you could actually publish these from Visual Studio with the AWS toolkit if you wanted to do it into a dev environment. But for your production environment, obviously, you don't want that. And then the actual folders, I think I clicked into the solution folder so you can see it's basically just a solution file and some other detritus that accumulated in there. <laughs> and then for the CI-CD pipeline, we actually have uh, four different pipelines. Each pipeline is triggered by a change to the source code in that associated repo. So when we took these, oh, are you supposed to be talking right now? You know, nobody would have known that if you didn't just ask me that You're question. You're gonna do the demo anyway. So when we did the screenshots for this, originally we had the, the static website being served out of, a, out of a container, and then Nikki cleverly said, why don't we just stick it in S3? And I, we, so we did that. And then they actually, because AWS is so often sort of iterating and improving stuff, the reason that last one has a different style is because they've rolled out a whole new UI for uh, code pipeline. So it looks kind of nicer now. And that one's obviously shorter because it has a right. less so, distance to go. There's no build, it's just static files. The, the first three, you can see the, the ones that go to containers, there's 
a source, so that gets triggered as soon as it detects that the source code has changed in the Git repository. And we're using the internal AWS provided Git repository called CodeCommit. You could also use GitHub that's already integrated into this, so you could just tell it to use GitHub instead of CodeCommit. Um, then the, the next step for all three of those containerized microservices is the build step. That's using CodeBuild, where it just creates a Linux container to run your build. Um, the Docker file itself, we're using that multi-step build where it, it does the build in one container and then it uses the just the runtime container to publish into, so you have a smaller container image. And then the last step is the deploy. Um, there's a lot of different mechanisms for deployment that Code Pipeline supports. We chose the built-in integrated deploy to ECS, the ECS deployment provider, because it'll just deploy right to ECS, including Fargate. Um, the other reason to also have a multi-stage Docker file is for security reasons. You don't want to take your source code with you to your final container. That's true. Okay, then Nikki's going to do a quick demo of making some arbitrary change. All right. I think we're going to add a controller method. Maybe it should be like, hey, Lewis. I don't know. <laughs> Since we're picking on Lewis today. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to open the products controller. Let's make this bigger. If only that Mac had a nice maximize button. <laughs> I'm going to ignore that. All right, I'm just gonna make a get call. We're all cool with that. How about that? I'm gonna do something simple like say hi to all of you. Get hello message. How about that? Whoa. Typing too fast. Hello from reInvent, if I can type. The audience will check your spelling. I know they will. All right. It's pretty simple, but it's for the purposes of this demonstration. All I have to do is actually do um, git add, commit, push, and then it will be live, and we'll actually be able to see it in the console going through the CI-CD pipeline and then in the browser when it's done. Note that best practice is not making a change and immediately pushing it without building and running it locally, but this is so simple, in though. the like interest you, of time. You want me to test this? No, I'm, I'm fine. I'm sure it'll work. I know it'll work because it's I'm so simple. It's, wear, all it's doing is returning a message. I'm doing wetware static analysis on it right now. Looks good. Oh, you know what I have to do? I have to um, delete my keychain for code commit because it saves my Git credentials. Something Back I really again, don't really like about code commit, which is why I use GitHub. I never have to do that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did you did you update this? Uh, uh the products controller. I. I hope uh, possibly. I'm gonna pull something down. <laughs> what did you That's do? The, the best kind of demo. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> All right, let's try that one again. I'm just gonna look at you. Don't remember? This would have happened in the last like 24 no, hours. Because I, I saw that I had a change that it said I was two commits ahead, and so I couldn't remember what I did, so I just did a push. <laughs> Great, this a, excellent. This is a sample app, by the way. None of this would go into our production code. Good job, Kirk. Okay, so she did, you already did the push, right? I did the push. Okay, so and now by the time I log pipeline. in. <clears throat> Do not try to hack into my account, please. I don't think they no, can. No, not you, I meant everybody else. I was like. Please, okay, I have so. complete access. <laughs> Code pipeline. Okay, finally, cart, or which one? Product service. It there was we go. that one. So that's already, so they missed the little spinning wheel in the source one because it took a while to get that Mac keychain thing working. But yeah, then the, okay. You want to blame <laughs> me? You had a, I had to pull down some crap. 
the code, the, uh, so you can see the code build is going just now, the, the actual build kicked off. That actually takes about five minutes to kick off. So I thought, wow, we have 20 minutes left, actually? That's we, we just can yeah. ask questions while this is going, and while then that's we'll, happening, see it, uh, we'll see it do live. Do people have questions about what we sort of went through that was much slower when we tried doing this rehearsal over the phone at one point? Um, he lives yeah. in Portland. I live in Seattle, so. Yeah. yeah. Let's do that. <clears throat> great, great question. The Docker file is really close to being the, the one that if you add Docker support in Visual Studio, I just uh, genericized it a tiny bit, I think. Is this the one I genericized? Yeah, so it doesn't have the project name hard-coded in there. It just says star.csproj, and that way I could basically copy and paste the same one into all of them and just change the entry point down at the end. For the, for the DLL. But other than that, it, this is the same thing you would get if in Visual Studio you right-clicked and said, you know, add item Docker support. Or when you create a new project, if you add Docker support and choose Linux containers. It does some kind of magic, though, when you do it in Visual Studio. When you add Docker support, it like, runs right over me. No, it doesn't. Oh, for me, it's some kind of magic is happening when it, like, because the Docker file doesn't look like this. It looks totally different. It looks almost the same, that's what I'm saying, but they have hard-coded the project name in, which I didn't like. Oh. But, I mean, I've done it both ways. You mean at the bottom? No, I, I yeah, something. Anyway, uh, did that thing, is the code pipeline? Probably not yet, but it should be almost done. Oh, no, about three, three and a half more minutes. Um, I, I just saw an announcement, like, two day, yesterday morning, I guess, that code pipeline is going to be faster now, so I was kind of hoping that we would see that shrink down, but I didn't. I tested it today, and it didn't seem to happen. But uh, another question? Yeah, about the, uh, so you have the files, you have the repository that includes the project. Um, is that a sub-module, or are you using um, Git out of each file? So that, the question was, are we using like Git sub-modules, or are we just lazily putting each microservices project into its own Git repo and leaving it at that. Can anyone guess the answer to that? It's definitely the second one. <laughs> That's the second one. Uh, it's been a long time since I worked with Git submodules. It was actually at that same prior job I had where I was, on a, I was a team lead for a large te number of teams. And that's the solution we used there was Git submodules. I didn't really want to go through the effort for this because we only had three projects and originally yeah, so we just have each one in its own repo, but you could use submodules to also like share uh, classes or maybe or share code or DLLs. Maybe they, I, you'd have to think that through, but that would be a perfectly good alternative way to do this, I think, especially if you had a really big, uh, big architecture with like 50 microservices or something. So I'm just playing the build spec uh, YAML. So mm -hmm. if you wanted to create this same project in code build, um, you would have Docker file, and you'd have this build spec to tell code build which commands to run before the build, during the build, after the build. And if you um, scroll to the bottom, you can see that it's, uh, if you see about the fourth line from the bottom that's yellow, it says printf name, the image line URI. Line And then, so there's two containers in there. One is the container for the, the thing that you're building, and the other container is the x-ray daemon container, which is, uh, we have uh, instructions and the documentation for how to like easily create that container. It's just like a couple lines to pull the image down and push it into your own uh, container repository, whether you're using Docker Hub or uh, ECR, which is our container repository. Yep. Yes, we do. That's actually how we generated that, that graph thing that we saw before. You want to see it in the console is what you're asking? Oh, yeah, sure. So we configured X-Ray, which was, um, it just shows you, now it's only gonna be whatever has happened in the last, you know, however long the uh, X-Ray traces are going on here, but let's see. So there it's showing some things. The product, the cart service will actually reach out to the product service if you add something to your cart. Uh, so that's probably just the gets. Can you, instead of last five minutes, can you do like last, I don't know, hour or something. And then, is it re? Yeah. That's interesting. It still doesn't look right. Oh, oh, oh it was just generating it slowly. <laughs> Sorry. 
and there, so now you can see from the last hour, so when she added something to her cart, the cart service just talks to the product service. And to do that, it's just an HTTP request to, uh, in this case, the, the URL that it talks to is product.awstechsummit. And that's because originally I was doing this presentation somewhere else at a tech summit. Um, and so the, the way, that's using service discovery. So that's how one microservice in our app architecture here can find another one. If the, they're all sharing one namespace. So for this application, I created a namespace called uh, Tech Summit. And then every microservice has a name. So the uh, shopping cart service is just cartservice.techsummit. The product service is product service dot tech, or I think just product dot tech summit actually, it doesn't even have product service. We can show you the code actually. Do you want to pull up the cart controller? <coughs> I don't have that uh, There's no, down. the way that one microservice talks to the other one is via HTTP to a, uh, a get or post or put request. But the way that that works is Route 53, which oh, is I our know. DNS resolution service for your VPC, it, Service Discovery will automatically create a private hosted zone with the base domain name of, of the namespace that I said, like in this case it's Tech Summit, and then it will create Route 53 DNS records. In this case, I, ch I chose A records for each service that gets created. Like for the product service, it'll create product.techsummit. And then anytime any other uh, microservice wants to talk to product.techsummit, the first thing that actually happens under the hood is a DNS resolution request, just like you were doing it from a browser. You know, where is product.techsummit? And then Route 53 knows where all of the product.techsummit containers are. So it's got like, you maybe in this case, two IP addresses. Uh, if you had 50 copies of this container, it would have 50. And Route 53 will then round robin the answers back to spread those requests out among all your different uh, containers. There's also health checks. So if one of your containers goes belly up and dies and a new one gets spawned with a different IP address, Route 53 will stop giving resolution to the first IP address and instead some of the requests will now resolve to the new container that, that got put into service behind a load balancer. Or sorry, actually as soon as the container is registered. It doesn't have to be behind a load balancer. So that's how these, and if you actually went into your VPC and the same VPC where your uh, containers are running, and just say you launched an EC2 instance running Windows 2016 or something, and you remote desktop onto that thing, and I actually did this just to prove it to myself when Service Discovery launched, and open up a browser, and I type in my browser, HTTP colon slash slash product dot tech summit slash API slash products, I will get the return from my microservice. So it's actually using DNS under the hood to do service discovery. There's a lot of different ways you could do service discovery. There's third party and open source products to do it. This is a really easy one and it's integrated with ECS. So every time ECS places a new copy of that container, it tells Route 53, add this IP address to the list of them for this service and then Route 53 will round robin them. Uh, did you already show that code? I wasn't even paying I attention. I pulled it up oh, okay. on the GitHub. I don't have it locally because this oh, is my right. new machine. Okay, so if we scroll to the very bottom. You drive. Yeah, keep my glasses off because I'm old. So, uh, let me see it. This is the method get product, get product, uh, get product from product service async. Here's how you have to instrument it if you want to get the x-ray tracing for those external HTTP requests. And it literally just makes a call to product, whoops, Ah, I cannot use a Mac apparently, <laughs> to product.techsummit, and then it adds the path slash API products and then whatever product ID that you're you know, trying to add to your cart, um, and then it returns, I'm actually logging this success, fetching the product from the product service, and then I return that product. Uh, and I just check whether the stock is enough, and we're never actually decrementing the stock right now, but so it never goes down, but, but it makes, inter-service calls between microservices really easy if you have a nice dis uh, service discovery mechanism like that. Um, anybody else have questions or, or suggestions or things like that? We'd like to hear what you guys do as well. Uh, how about in the back first? Sure. So the Right, I get it, and that's a common question. So the question was, 
choosing between like Fargate or ECS with EC2 launch type, in which case you have to choose uh, the EC2 instance type and set up scaling for the underlying, the host, the Docker hosts, versus Fargate where you just say, here's my container, please go run it, and there's no infrastructure. Is there a case where you would still want to use ECS with instances? And the answer is yes. Uh, obviously, if you're running ASP.NET Framework and you need a Windows container, you have to use the EC2 instance type at this time. Fargate doesn't currently support that. But even then, if your company, uh, if your uh, dev team maybe has some particular um, instance type that you want to use for some reason, maybe something that has a GPU, or maybe uh, you, you want to have more control over it, uh, maybe you want to run an agent on that host. Maybe you're using New Relic and you want to have some New Relic agent running on the Docker host that's collecting data. Well, if you're using Fargate, you don't have access to the host. You can't see it. It's not in your VPC. We're the ones managing that. So if there is some kind of agent you want to run, you would have to do that. You also get more control over how containers are placed on the underlying host if you're doing that yourself. You could say, try different bin packing strategies. There's a scheduler, uh, open source scheduling container scheduler library that we put out called Blocks. So you could use that to do very sophisticated scheduling mechanisms of how I want the containers to be placed. I want to try putting three of them on this one, but always one of this container on every host, maybe. Um, so there are instances of, if you want that extra control, you would do that. As far as cost, that's, that's you'd have to kind of, you'd have to look at your particular use case and figure out, is paying for it by the second you, with, the, the, with Fargate, you pay by the second, and the price is based on two indices. One is the virtual CPUs, so this, the amount of compute power, and the other is based on memory in gigabytes. And they don't scale. It's not like Lambda where they're locked, and if you pick one level, you're going to get that much CPU and that much memory. With each CPU choice that you make with Fargate, you get a range of maybe four to six different memory choices you could have. So you you really have to look at I could potentially save money by doing it on EC2 if I was very good at packing my containers on there. On the other hand, you've just bought off on managing EC2 instances and setting up your own scaling of the hosts themselves, and we don't patch those instances for you, so if that uh, Docker host, there's a, a security patch or just some update that needs to be applied, that's then on you, so you're gonna eat that administrative burden. Does that make sense? All right. And it then, worked. Yay! Oh, you actually pulled it up. So this is the uh, hello from reInvent. So it deployed. We didn't have to do anything other than a git push. And by we, I mean her. Um, a git push, and then it all just automatically went up. Now, in a real code pipeline, ours has three steps. Source, build, deploy. Does anyone have an idea of what might be missing in there for a production app? Production app? Test. Test, right. So you probably want to have tests running, a test step, and, and code pipeline fully supports that. But one of the great things about being an SA is none of my code gets tested. So we didn't actually do that. <laughs> but uh, I used to uh, work in production shops where lots of unit tests get written. Um, and so you could run all your tests in containers as well. Uh, you could run Chrome driver if you really want to test your front end and so on. Uh, in this case, we were the testers. But that was a, uh, and then did you have a question? Yeah. Sure. So actually, uh, code deployed just rolled out today. Yeah, support like... for blue green deployments to ECS. So you could use we use the ECS provider in code pipeline directly. Instead of using that for deployment, we could have used code deploy for that last step. And code deploy can actually do blue green deployments. It will. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, so this that just came like, out today. So That uh, was yesterday, November 27th. Or yesterday, sorry. I wish it had been a little earlier for you. Um, yeah, there's been so many announcements this week. I'm just trying to keep up with everything and make sure that we were not going to be obsoleted. Uh, so I know I t we talked about parameter store and how there's a NuGet package coming out for that uh, that allows you to store that IXML repository, store the encryption keys for your session. You won't have to like copy and paste code from my GitHub repo. You could just use that NuGet package when it comes out. And in the interim, the official AWS uh, Git repo, I'm sure his code's been tested more than mine because mine was not, mine was me testing it by sticking things in session state and making sure it worked. Um, can you go to DynamoDB really quick? I kind of totally. wanted to show something. We still have five minutes. And the, the guy who 
uh, wrote the code. His name's Norm Johansson. He's giving a session that started 10 minutes ago, sorry, uh, just down the hall here where you could catch the last 45 minutes of his when our session's over. Um, hopefully not everybody gets up and runs right now. No, okay. So he's gonna be demonstrating the AWS toolkit and talking about uh, deploying things from within Visual Studio and some other enhancements that are coming out. And he's gonna be demonstrating that. So if you go to DynamoDB, this is our DynamoDB tables. If we look at the Tech Summit session state, that's actually, uh, I hate you. Oh. Use um, this side. Okay. If we go to the items, so we've had multiple different people apparently hitting this somehow. Uh, so here's all of their different session cookies. That's partly because I've done it from I've two, done it two a different bunch laptops. Times. Norm Johansson hit it, she's hit it. So From three different laptops. Right, and then as these things get expired, they will come out. I'm, now I'm wondering if the audience has been hitting it because there's a lot of them in here. So, and then the, the actual encryption keys are stored here, so over time, those will get the, the keys will expire, and then the ASP.NET Core, ASP Core session middleware will generate new encryption keys. So over time, we've had two of them. I did not encrypt the actual keys for any production environment. You should encrypt your encryption keys. Probably don't have to explain why that would be really important to <laughs> not leave your encryption keys in plain text. I only did it here in case I had time to like copy and paste that into JSON and show you how the actual key data is in there. And that's all just being passed through. That, that the IXML repository implementation I did doesn't actually do anything to it. It just sticks it as a string into the, uh, into the database. Um, we have three minutes left. Did anybody have, yes? Yes, but yeah. you wouldn't have to do it yourself if you don't want, both DynamoDB and Parameter Store, can, you can specify that you want it stored encrypted. In fact, DynamoDB is now gonna be encrypted by default, I believe. In Parameter Store, you, it already is, right? I wasn't sure if it was released yet or not. I'm so glad yeah, it was. Yeah, it is. Uh, so, and uh, Parameter Store, you can choose to use, instead of a, as a string, you can choose to store it as secure string and choose which KMS key that you want to use. Do we want to flip back over to show the link to excuse the moi. Show the link to the uh, that's the GitHub repo. It I put it all in one repo because I didn't want to have four different repos copied up. So if you want, you can pull code down from there. It's not production code. This is just sample demo code that you can look at and play with. Um, please don't like deploy this to a production app. Yeah. I know, and I also put, I exported a copy we'll of the, the slides. Yeah, so these slides will end up on SlideShare in a few days, and then there's a PDF copy. Oh, look, you already put my email on this slide. Yeah. Oh, yeah, so both of our emails are there. So, and somebody's Twitter handle. So that's good. Uh, Nikki hosts a Twitch show, which is uh, all focused on developer stuff. Uh, actually, a whole bunch of Twitch shows. This whole week, she's been live streaming on Twitch. For those who don't know, Twitch is a part of uh, Amazon also, part of AWS or Amazon? AWS. A well, AWS bought Twitch. Yeah, AWS bought Twitch at some point is what happened. So, oh, yes. Right, you should be able to automate all that with uh, CloudFormation. There's also a publicly accessible tool that we launched sometime this summer called the CDK, the Cloud Development Kit, that will generate. I told generate... him about that one. You already did? Oh yeah, I sat next to him on the bus. Oh, oh you told him personally. I thought you meant you told the whole crowd no, and him. I didn't, didn't hear it. Him personally. Um, so there's one minute till the session's officially over. I have time after that. But you could use the CDK and write it in C Sharp and actually create your stacks that way and it will generate all the cloud formation unless your favorite thing is writing incredibly complicated JSON or YAML code as templates, and if that is your favorite thing. No, uh, it's not. not. Congratulations. Uh, was there a hand in the back? Yes. How, how do you use Cognito for what? For authentication. For authentication. You like mean how what, is it working? What specifically would you like to see? Oh, how I interact with the Cognito. 
Okay, well that's actually you using Amplify. To, like create a user pool or the JavaScript that talks to it? Well, actually, I could just open this uh, up okay. here. Okay, so she's leveraging a JavaScript library that comes with Amplify. If you haven't been to the Ampl AWS Amplify website, go to Google or Bing, I guess, and type AWS so Amplify. So Amplify is three things. It's a CLI, it's a JavaScript <laughs> library, and it's uh, pre-built UI components. Yes. So you can use any number of the three things. For this application, I'm using the CLI and the JavaScript libraries to hit Cognito. So I'll pull it up. And when we originally did it, AWS Amplify wasn't yet out, and so we were using the old Cognito JavaScript SDKs and then copying and pasting code from the documentation and then testing it until it worked. And then when Amplify came out, she just ripped all that out and in like 10 minutes got it working with Amplify. So that was definitely the yeah, way Yeah, you go. can get it working with Amplify like really fast. Like I literally, he's not kidding. Like it was 10 minutes and it was up and running. So um, I wanted to make sure I said thank you before everybody's gone. Thank you for coming to the session today. We really appreciated it. Um,